Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Radio has been a large part of my life. I'm not a radio aficionado. I don't know much about it. I just know that radio makes this possible, my cell phone, and that it makes this possible, my book, or books, or books and articles and magazines. But radio has a long and distinguished history. I thank radio in part for any education I've been able to pick up along the way, because as a child in Africa, I listened to a marvelous organization called the BBC Transcription Service. I don't quite know what they meant by transcription service, but it introduced me to a world far from our life in Africa. Uh, another man, uh, David Tessitore, fell in love with radio when he was a child, and instead of admiring it and enjoying it and using it from afar, he became an amateur radio operator. And he is with me today. He is uh, the president, is it David? Yes. Of the Providence Radio Association. Correct. And that is an amateur radio association. We are in their studios outside of Providence on top of a hill with a transmitter above us. But that's not really used in the amateur part, is it? Uh, some of our antennas uh, that you see outside in the yard are indeed. We're on a hill that uh, uh, overlooks the city of Providence, so there's a myriad of uh, transmitting facilities here. Uh, but it's a very strategic point uh, because it gives us the elevation to uh, look over the horizon and transmit our signals afar. Before we go any further, I think I should give our listeners, in case they want to try to read you, your call sign, which is K1DT. I'll repeat that, K1DT. David, how did you get into this? Well, when I was a, uh, a young man, my uh, grandfather uh, would uh, retire into the uh, study after a Sunday dinner where he would have his cigar and tune into the opera coming from the station RAI, the voice of Italy, the voice of Rome. And we would listen to the opera on his lovely uh, German-made Grundig shortwave radio, which was a, uh, a lovely piece of art, true uh, object de art. Um, so I was fascinated by the fact that somewhere in Rome, uh, someone is putting a needle down on a record, and I'm listening to it, but not perfectly clearly. There's some static in the background that's fascinating, and it's almost uh, undulating sounds of the atmosphere going on, which you familiar listening to shortwave service, or... Uh, 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 on another analogy would be the old uh, AM broadcast bands. It's not all that clear, but there's some warmth to listening to the game on the AM radio when the signal is fading in and out a little bit. Uh, after the opera, we would tune around all these knobs and switches and listen to foreign broadcasts from other countries, odd noises, Morse code, something I later found out was single sideband, Donald Duck type uh, uh, information. And I was just fascinated by the technology behind this. So of course, I wanted to take this radio apart and figure out what made it all work. 
Uh, that wasn't going to happen, but the local library had books about radio. In the early uh, 60s, amateur radio was a, uh, uh, a uh, very uh, uh, popular hobby for uh, people uh, to uh, get involved in the technical aspects uh, of, uh, of science and communication. It was the breeding ground for a lot of uh, young engineering students to uh, experiment. Um, if we go back, we think of uh, the origins of this, and most people will point to a fellow by the name of Marconi. Yeah, well, a good Italian name, but it, go, it starts earlier than that, doesn't it? It starts far earlier than well, that. Well, what year did it really um, start? In 1865, there was a Scottish physicist, uh, James Clerk Maxwell. And Maxwell uh, theorized uh, an equation that uh, defined elect something new called electromagnetic waves. And he said that the static electricity um, uh, and uh, magnetism and heat and audio was all the same stuff, just on different frequencies and wavelengths and that it propagates through space. Well, this was, and, and he proved it mathematically on the board. Well, the first thing anyone wants to do is either uh, uh, prove that with an experiment or debunk it. So along comes a German uh, professor uh, called Heinrich Hertz, by the name of Heinrich Hertz. And we know the term Hertz. Megahertz, kilohertz. Heinrich Hertz developed some apparatus and an experiment in front of an audience in his classroom to prove the existence of these waves. He then went on to label them Hertzian waves, and, not Maxwellian and waves. And so the word, but, but he, he was doing it over short distances. Oh, this was over a tabletop, and this was just to prove Maxwell's equation. And where did Marconi come in? What was his contribution? Marconi was a young student uh, he was at the University of Bologna, and of course everyone was studying this fascinating electromagnetic wave theory, and they were reading all about Hertz and, and, and Maxwell, of course. Um, Marconi got the idea that, boy, rather than send this signal across a tabletop, I can send it tens of miles, maybe hundreds of miles. Prior to wireless, and the term hadn't been de developed yet, uh, the only way to signal ships at sea were from the semaphore towers. They would build large, people, tall stone people towers. waving flags. <laughs> they would wave flags. Once the ship... <laughs> Some Boy Scouts may have remembered, may remember learning uh, the semaphore. Once the ships were beyond the horizon, all communication was lost. Marconi said, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could replace these uh, semaphore Again, towers. replace the year, Marconi's year. So Marconi, this was uh, in the late uh, 1800, 1890 to 1900. Okay. When Marconi was experimenting. And he actually brought it to the Italian post office that said, uh, and he was a young man at this time, and they said, well, very, very clever uh, little device, young man, please go along. Uh, well, Marconi had another ace in the hole. Um, his mother was uh, uh, a nobility, 
and she was of the Jameson clan uh, in Ireland, uh, the same Jameson that makes the Irish whiskey. So his grandfather said, come with me, we're going to talk to the British post office. The British post office saw the same dog and pony show that he put on for the Italians, and the British said, you're on. Build us a experimental system, and let's see how it works. Um, and in case anybody doesn't understand, Ireland was still a part of Britain then. Correct. And so Marconi became a British company. So Marconi, in a matter of no time, was embraced by the Brits. They saw the value of wireless communications. Marconi took all these uh, theories and made a practical device out of it. And there's a wonderful book by Hugh Aiken called uh, The Symphony of Spark, in which, uh, which we see going on uh, all the time. We see science and technology, pure science and technology morphing into a product that benefits mankind. Let, let's jump forward a little bit. We now have radio. Uh, so now we have radio. The key with radio is distance. Everyone wants distance, right? The radio uh, surpassed the distance of the semaphore. Well, Marconi could now talk to some ships in the harbor. Now he wants to talk to ships at sea. Everyone's reading about this, all the little experimenters. And there's experimenter magazines that are very popular in the day. So every backyard mechanic and tinkerer and uh, uh, people who were uh, previously playing with gasoline engines and, and the like uh, all wanted to build wireless gadgets. So now we have a bunch of experimenters reading magazines like Popular Mechanics who are now uh, building little wireless gizmos and communicating via Morse code to their neighbors and friends and really experimenting with different antennas, different aerials, different hookups. What we have is now a dozens and hundreds and thousands of little laboratories, grassroots laboratories, and everyone's sharing information. We're all communicating with one another. We're, we're, we have a little social network going on with wireless. Uh, the government is paying attention to this for two reasons. These radio amateurs are making a mess. They're, they're cluttering the airwaves with all their noises and beeps and bops and sounds where the um, uh, government is trying to uh, communicate with uh, uh, their fleets, and these amateurs are actually being a nuisance. But they realize they're not just a nuisance, they're a resource. So let's recruit them. If you can't beat them, join them. So the government recruits all these radio amateurs to assist in the development of radio. And uh, up until present time, a lot of the uh, corporations that are developing wireless technology have hired and uh, 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 gotten resources from the amateur radio community uh, because that's what we do. We're passionate so what about year, it. So what year are we in now in this? So now we're in the 30s. Okay. We're in the 30s, and names like Westinghouse are popping up, and General what Electric. What was the role in all of this of Nikola Tesla? Now, Tesla took Maxwell's electromagnetic waves of a, but he played on the other end of the spectrum. Rather than the radio end of the spectrum, 
frequency, took the very low frequencies, and used them to create low frequency magnetic fields, which uh, when uh, introduced to a magnet on a shaft, makes that shaft rotate. And Tesla came up with the electric motor. With the same electromagnetic energy that Marconi was using to transmit signals, just at a lower frequency. Now, what was the role of the military? The military, in particular when there's a war or a war in prospect, tends to push a lot of money into technology and uh, to produce products that it wants. Now, radios on the battlefield became very important. Um, when did that happen? World War I. Uh, the military uh, on both sides, the good guys and the bad guys, were both using radio equipment. Uh, there's radio that is mounted on horseback. Uh, this was very early rudimentary equipment, but wireless nonetheless, and it proved to be enormously valuable. Uh, okay, and so we go on the Second World War radio. It's well established. You can use a, um, a, a radio steer to bring an aircraft back to Britain from Indeed. the continent. In fact, it was the early navigation of radio of aircraft were by by radio signals. By radio beacons. Long before the Marconi Company developed during the Second World War radar. Right. Now, what is this? I, I so this, um, this is a very intriguing uh, device. It looks like a telephone, uh, except it has all this radio attached to it. Hello, there's nobody there. So um, in World War II, there was a company called the Galvin, or prior to World War II, there was a company in Chicago called the Galvin Manufacturing Company. And uh, Galvin made car radios. And they're very successful at car radios because they sold hundreds of thousands of automobile radios. Automobiles did not come with radios. So Galvin was the premier manufacturer of car radios. They sold the car radio by the name of a Motorola. So Motorola car radios uh, had a, a very large manufacturing facility. Uh, they were, uh, the government approached them to develop a walkie-talkie for the battlefield. And Motorola developed this iconic walkie-talkie that you'll see in all the World War II movies uh, on the front line. That uh, was very successful. It was brilliant, uh, brilliant engineering and a very well-built product. And they built hundreds of thousands of these. After the war, Motorola took that same technology and built a two-way radio with a handset. And uh, this would be used by police departments, um, civil defense, people who needed communications, uh, wireless communications, municipalities. It wasn't long afterwards that the phone company got involved using these and tying them into a wireless operator. So one could pick up this handset, talk to the operator, and ask her to place a call to my good friend Llewellyn King at Temple 13221, and they would patch it through. So we had the first Motorola and how wireless phone. And get from there to here? How did we get to the cell phone, the ubiquitous modern tool of everything, 
the circuitry in this is extremely similar to the circuitry in that, only miniaturized. What this needs, the cell phone, uh, is the network. So uh, walkie-talkies and battlefield communication was all short distance. And what did Morgan O'Brien, who viewers and listeners may remember from previous programs where we've talked to Morgan O'Brien. Uh, Indeed, from Nextel. Um, he developed the network. So now this device and your device connects to a network of relay stations or repeater stations, if you will, that are all interconnected via fiber and make one large homogenous uh, communication network. And that's the brilliant design behind the cellular uh, telephone. Let's go back to amateur radio. This is your first and primary love. Oh, it is. We're in these studios here. There's a, uh, in one side of the room, there's a, uh, an old-fashioned studio, and the other one is a modern studio, and yet it's still amateur radio. It's not radio by, by telephone, it's radio. And uh, when I was a boy, as I mentioned, I listened to the shortwave, as many of us did. But also, uh, we so admired amateur radio operators because in emergencies, we could ask them to see if they could get through to another town Indeed. or another country. And sometimes they could. And so they were revered people. In the, in the, they were like doctors. You know, he, he drives a truck full of, but he's an amateur radio operator, a rather superior figure. <laughs> yes, indeed. And it is one of our uh, charters from the Federal Communication Commission that we provide emergency communication services. The beauty of amateur radio is there is no infrastructure other than one's own equipment that is required to make a contact. Do you need a license? You, one must have a license, very similar to a pilot's license. You take a series of tests uh, by the, uh, administered by the federal government. And you must actually, to be a pilot, you must have a radio operator's license. Uh, Correct. And let us, uh, tell us where government came in, where they started allocating frequencies, how they got the spaghetti untangled. Right, so as I mentioned, we're now in back in the 20s and uh, the Navy is trying to communicate with ships and Marconi is trying to send messages uh, across the ponds, and all these little gnats, these amateur radio operators, are making their signals everywhere. And the government said, stop. It's time to allocate channels and frequencies and break things up into radio bands. So the government met, and actually uh, internationally, the International Telecommunication Union met in the early 20s and broke up this electromagnetic spectrum that uh, was theorized by Maxwell, which was now a very popular space and still is today, broke it up into bands and said AM broadcasting will be from 550 kilohertz to 1600 kilohertz. And FM broadcasting will be 88 to 108 megahertz and the amateur radio will be in this section, and so on and so forth. And, and the police departments will use this section, and ships at sea will use this section. So they turn chaos into order. 
But right. the amateurs were huge uh, drivers of the technology in the early days. Tell me about the A-static microphone. Ah, uh, the uh, static microphone uh, goes back to the day of Rochelle Salt. Uh, it was a transducer, and it turns. Uh, uh, it uses piezoelectricity to turn sound vibrations into electrical... I'm almost sorry I asked. And <laughs> sound vibrations into electrical energy. Uh, and it uh, was the most iconic microphone of the day uh, and still is very popular. Um, do we still have creation? We still have uh, uh, things coming out of basements and attics we do. We uh, that influence the whole radio world. The bane of any communication system is noise, uh, right? and you, e even vocal communication. Noise, you go in a noisy restaurant, it's difficult to carry on our communication. We struggle. We don't go to that restaurant anymore because it's too noisy. Certain uh, frequencies are noisy. I'm trying to get my signal through. Darn, if there wasn't so much noise, I would be able to copy that signal, but I can't hear you through the noise. Uh, there is new technology out that uses coherent uh, data communications and allows you to uh, decode signals using computer technology and software algorithms below the noise, an incredible degree below the noise. So inaudible signals can now be copied with perfect clarity. And did that come from? And this came from radio amateurs. Okay, that's very important. Now, this came from a radio amateur in Massachusetts. And what year was that? Oh, uh, this was five years ago. Five so this now. is cu current so, technology. So there are still eureka moments and this was in a basements eureka and attics indeed. and bedrooms and indeed. wherever. One of the great up. eureka moments in amateur radio, um, pardon me, it was in radio astronomy. I want to talk about uh, Grote Reber. Grote Reber. Uh, was playing around with his ham radio in Illinois and realized that the static in the background changes. What could be making that change in static? And what it was, was the planets. He was actually hearing noise coming from the planets and built a parabolic dish antenna in his backyard to pick up wireless signals from outer space and actually mapped 500 interplanetary objects. That led to the creation of radio astronomy and you know the, the fantastic dish that unfortunately fell down in Arecibo, uh, uh, Puerto Rico, but the whole science of radio astronomy and the mapping of the Milky Way started with amateur radio operators. Let's go back to, to the people who are listening who may want to get into it, who may want to become a, a David Satori. Sure. Uh, not that they would ever quite have so much knowledge oh, 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 or please. know so much history, but uh, David, what do you need to start out as an amateur? 
Well, obviously, interest in, in doing SABE. It is a, uh, uh, an avocation, and uh, one needs to be somewhat passionate about it. It's a little esoteric. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, not uh, as common as, is, as it was once in the 50s but, and but 60s. But what do you need to get started? To get started, one would uh, need to st study material. We no longer need to learn the Morse code, which was a prior requirement. Uh, that was uh, uh, given up back in around 2000. So there's no need to learn the Morse code, although ironically, most people who get into ham radio enjoy the well, Morse the code. The Morse code is fun. It's because it's pilots fun used to and have it, to adds some, some of it. it adds some uh, art to the uh, process of communication. Now, you get a, you, you, you what are the rewards? You talk to somebody in Siberia, somebody in New Zealand, somebody in, in uh, Chile, So uh, uh, this the, is the, a thrill? The, the, the rewards are, are you can provide uh, emergency communications uh, to help both your, your own family and others. So uh, there's that philanthropic uh, aspect to it. Um, and uh, secondly, it's a social uh, um, avenue. So you meet friends on the air, uh, just as people have done in chat rooms or the like. But there's no uh, infrastructure involved. You're talking to them directly. The early chat through, room. Through the, years. the early, it's the chat, early room. chat room. So you make friends and comrades, and you get to uh, talk about different antennas and ideas and uh, or family or, or uh, fine restaurants that you like to do. So, I mean, the conversation uh, just follows. Uh, but one of the, uh, going back to the early days, one of the foremost uh, avenues that is pursued by amateurs is something called DXing. And DXing is an acronym for distant exchange. It goes back to the telephone days when you would connect to a DX, a distant exchange. Um, you would be patched through. Well, we call DXing uh, a uh, noble part of our hobby, and that is there are 340 entities on planet Earth, entities being islands, countries, uh, continents. There are 340 of these entities, and of course, you want to contact all 340 of them. Um, it's certainly easy to talk to Canada or Mexico because they're so close. And now or you, you stretch out to the Caribbean. Well, the next step is you want to cross the pond and get into Europe and start checking off all these uh, points on your map. We're out of time. I'd like you to uh, say goodbye to our audience as you would say goodbye on a broadcast. Well, uh, this is K1DT in Rhode Island, operating at the Providence Radio Association, bidding you a 73 and good DX. We will see you on Down the Radio Log, 7-3. Great job, great job. That is our broadcast for today. We thank David so much for coming along, and we have a new interest, or I do at least, in amateur radio. I'm not sure I'd do it, but I'm certainly glad to know about it. Until next week, cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. 
full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.